This is Consumed, the podcast that sparks conversations with eaters, drinkers, thinkers, and makers across California, and especially at its heart, the Central Coast. I'm your host, Jamie Lewis, a freelance food and drink writer based in San Luis Obispo. Nan Cole is a foraging expert based in San Luis Obispo, California, and she's also the resident forager for Ventana Big Sur. She leads foraging walks, both urban and wild, and she educates people about the do's and don'ts of wildcrafting, and then she cooks and bakes with her finds. In fact, that's how I first was attracted to Nan's work. I saw a photo on her Instagram, which is at foragerslow, featuring a beautiful macaron made from redwood needle sugar and lemon zest. We walked up to a cozy spot on the side of Cerro San Luis to chat, and she pointed out native plants along the way, sharing how coyote brush is an antidote for poison oak and how mustard plant tastes like broccoli, things like that. Then, a couple weeks after our talk, I opened Sunset Magazine to find a full-page spread about Nan and her foraging program at Ventana Big Sur. A rock star! If you don't feel inspired to join one of her foraging walks after listening to our conversation, you might want to check your pulse because this woman is inspiring. Here's my talk with Nan Cole. Nan Cole is a forager and she's here with Mei Mei, her beautiful Cavalier King Charles. And we are up on the side of Cerro San Luis. Some people call it Madonna Mountain. And as we walked up here, we saw a number of things on our way up. California sagebrush, um, hummingbird sage. What else do we see? We saw some oak trees and some, well, there weren't very many acorns at this time because acorns are ready to fall in the fall. Mm -hmm. So we're just about to approach the summer. It feels like summer already, but not 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 quite yet. So um, there are wonderful things you can make with acorns from mm. pancakes to kind of porridge. I love making uh, plant-based cheese alternatives. Yeah. So I put sauerkraut juice inside and, and uh, ferment it. So it's very good for the tummy. You can do this with cashews or walnuts yeah. or a lot of different things but you can um you can do it with acorns and it always impresses your friends <laughs> well yeah yeah so to make a, a cheese like that you ferment it you ferment what is it like the almond meal base mm-hmm. or sorry the acorn meal mm-hmm. and then you strain you must strain it at some point right yeah so you have an excess of liquid i'd say that the uh to make a soft cheese is easy to make hard cheese is hard yeah yeah, yeah. so it takes more time um but it uh the result is always so delicious it takes about a little less than a week to make hard cheese from it but, and that's why you could imagine that a lot of people haven't ever experienced acorns because it takes time to take out the tannins either through a cold, uh, cold rinsing or hot rinsing. Um, even just the collection of acorns sure. takes some time. Uh, but it's a, it's a labor of love. And mm-hmm. I think at this time now in life, I think a lot of us are looking for ways to reconnect connect with nature. Mm-hmm. And so we want to take that time. Mm-hmm. And it requires us to look hard. So many of us went out to the same trails every day over and over again uh, during this, you know, turbulent time of COVID. Mm -hmm. And being curious about what's out there gives us an opportunity to have new eyes. Mm -hmm. So every time we go out, there's something new to look at. There's something, it's like an adventure to explore. 
and and it's and it's right in our backyard. Um, what I love about foraging is that not only are you able to enjoy nature, but it creates this kind of bioregional interdependence, mm-hmm. where you're curious if your city is spraying say mm. pesticides or herbicides because you actually consume in a small way the environment. So uh, I I look up what the city does and I want to know that that the things that I'm eating are as safe as they can be. Um, but when out in the wild, you can get very nutrient rich food more so than even really sustainably harvested mm-hmm. food. So, yeah. You mentioned that you don't replace, you don't seek to replace your diet with found or foraged food. Talk Correct. a little bit about why and, and how yeah. you do that. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. So I often get from people when they want to go out foraging that, oh, I've had this idea where I want to have 100% foraged food as my diet. And I ask them first, where are they going to move to? And <laughs> how much land are they going to buy? Yeah. Because um, in this country, Uh, and in this community, there's not a ton of land that is common spaces. So in your mind, where do you think we can actually forage legally? Mm, um, Gosh, well, is open space allowed? No. Well, um, your own some, yard, basically. Yeah, your own yard, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and you have to know then if there's any sprays that have been put on your land mm-hmm. uh, in the past, or if you've if you've sprayed or spot treated any areas. So um, you can also uh, forage on private land if you've gotten permission. But the best place to really go is um, is really the land of of many uses, and that's forest service land. Mm-hmm. That is, of course, if you're not doing it for commercial ventures, but you can collect uh, a little bit for yourself. So when I'm thinking about the the process and the relationship that I have with the environment, it's not about replacing the food that I have. It's about infusing the flavors of the local terroir. Mm -hmm. And I'm so inspired by by these flavors because you can't get it anywhere else. And that's what makes living here so special. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's 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 a number of 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 food stuff that uh, I can get. And it tells me that I'm here, hmm. like I am here. Mm-hmm. And one of those things is bay. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have an abundance Love of it. California bay laurel. You know, what's interesting about the bay tree is that this tree was around during the dinosaur era. Wow. And there used to be a California avocado that has fallen to the wayside. Mm-hmm. But its relative, the bay laurel tree, has survived. And we have the the bay leaves, which we can use in soup stocks. One of my all-time favorite flavors, honestly. I just, it, there's nothing like it. Yeah, so says the the, the slow the slocal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I yeah. mean, yes. You yes. can't get more of a local flavor than that. Yep, love it. Um, using it dried and always using it in smaller quantities yeah. than the European variety because it's two to f- four times more potent yeah. than the, uh, the European variety. But not only are the leaves usable for soups and other things like that, but there's also these wonderful things called bay nuts. Mm. And bay nuts, they look like the cutest, tiniest little avocados. Mm. And they are in fact related to the avocado. Uh, you can pick them, but they're on multi-year cycles. So mm. last year was a bust. The year before before that was a boom. Mm. So I collected uh, and I stored them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about on the walk up how acorns are very storable. That's because of the fat content. Bay nuts are even more storable. So mm. you can store them up for fi- up to five years yeah. and keep them in your pantry. So I peel the outer hull and then I have an inner hull, which 
I uh, will dry out in the sun for, you know, about 20 days. And then I keep them in my pantry and I, um, I roast them when I'm ready. Mm -hmm. Now, the way to roast them is just like you would uh, coffee mm -hmm. or um, maybe even cacao. And the flavor is very similar. Mm -hmm. What's great about uh, bay, the bay nuts, is it has a caffeine-like substance in it. So you can use that as a local alternative to coffee. Come on. That's oh pretty amazing. Well, we need somebody to, I mean, not not all of us have the time to do that. We need somebody to be making that so we can buy it. Yeah, I um, I have a lot of feels about um, commercial yeah. yeah commercial wild harvesting of things. Now, um, as as you might see from my um, my Instagram forager slow, mm -hmm. I, I do sometimes have tasters. Um, my passion is to educate folks so that they can make the time mm -hmm. because there's no replacement to going out in the wild and spending a little time and having that tactile kinesthetic mm -hmm. kinesthetic experience mm -hmm. of being able to um, to go out in the wild to have the physical exercise size of, of walking to um, get the tactile experience of of finding the finding the the berries or the nuts mm -hmm. or the leaves um, and then processing it which also takes time yes I, I do think there's a value of bringing things to market but it is tricky because of this factor we were talking about about the limitations of common spaces yes and so wild harvested uh, commercial products tend to have problems with sustainability because mm -hmm. of the limits to yeah. the common spaces we have. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, there are things that are in abundance. Bay is one of those mm -hmm. where if you're on a good year and there are bay nuts, uh, you, you can have some in excess and in small quantities, provide people with tasters. Mm -hmm. And that usually is enough where they're like, I'm curious. Mm -hmm. I want to get out there and I want to experience firsthand what it's like to go out and recognize, um, go from recognizing to identifying. And once they can do that, they can't unsee it. Yeah. So they'll start to notice it everywhere. Yeah. And, and this really helps to boost and bolster that sensory experience where they can, uh, they can they can really have that profound change mm -hmm. and change of relationship. You're totally food. right. You are totally right. Um, I mean, also, like you said, uh, supply may not be there for mm -hmm. somebody to commercially do anything. But I do also think about long-term sustainability. And if coffee is off the table at a mm -hmm. certain point, mm -hmm. um, or it's just too detrimental to grow commercially, I mean, I think it's worth looking at alternatives. This is this is not so much a foraging discussion as like a you know future of food discussion. Oh, yeah. If we are going to lose coffee at some point, and and, and, you, and cacao, and cacao, and you also mentioned avocados, the fact that these um, kind of like uh, related to bay mm -hmm. avocados went by the wayside. I mean, I just read yesterday that there's a very good chance by 2050, California avocados will be gone, mm. and if they're not gone, they'll be twenty dollars a piece. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. um, so I think looking at what sustainable alternatives are out there, I mean, who knows? Maybe bay nuts is something that would just, you know. They thrive here. Right. It's, it's, it's so um, interwoven into our land that mm -hmm. we could absolutely substitute things. And that's a huge component of what I'm so excited to bring forward with foraging. Yeah. So you're probably seeing all over town these little yellow fruits going off, the mm -hmm. loquats. Yes. And so, oh, I um, love loquats. 
I love loquats too. I dehydrate them or um, my, my intern, Meredith Hacker, she's a Cal Poly student and she and I do a forager's test kitchen um, every week. And I saw the macarons that you made. She made. She made. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And for being, you know, a wild food, it does. It looks like it could be in a Parisian bake shop. We, we want to elevate wild food to to the level that it should be, Yeah. which it's a delicacy. Mm-hmm. And, and sure enough, those macarons we have um, for the listeners, we've got forest We've got uh, redwood tips that are collected and then infused into sugar. And then that sugar is used in macarons. And the flavor is like right away the forest floor hits you Mm. and then it turns into lemon. So it's just this little boom of flavor Mm. and then it mellows out. And it's just uh, such a delight to experience. Um, but, um, But the... Um, we were just talking prior to this before the the forest um meredith and i are collecting what are we collecting i'm sorry (laughs) you lost your train of thought yeah the bay Mm. yeah yeah um with oh nespa um yeah loquats yes yes you knew where i was going well the first time i ever had (laughs) thank you loquats knowingly Mm. Was when my husband and I lived in Italy, and someone told us they were talking about the Nespole. Yes. And we're like Nespole. What are you talking oh, about? Yes. And they're just everywhere, and mm. they're so tart, mm. juicy. I mean, it's tempting to look at them because they look so similar to an apricot mm-hmm. to think that that's what they are, but they're really quite different. Thick skin, mm-hmm. um, large seeds. Very beautiful. And that's where seeds. I was going. So okay. the seeds. I was so curious about what I could do with these enormous seeds. Small, um, a, a very small portion of it is fruit mm-hmm. and then what do you do with the rest of it well there's an italian recipe where you can uh, dehydrate the seed and then add it to alcohol um, so uh, you add it to let's say a vodka mm-hmm. and then that flavor infuses and the result becomes a amaretto type flavor so it does have an almond property to it i've Absolutely. always wondered these mm-hmm. seeds if you've never seen one i mean when they come out of the fruit they almost have like an iridescent quality to yes. them they're really really beautiful and it's tempting to just keep them because they're so pretty but but to okay because i know um apricot pits also have and like an amidine quality mm-hmm. to them too mm-hmm. So you can you can um, infuse that, and I use uh, this uh, the Nespolino as a local alternative to vanilla bean extract, mm. and I've found that the flavors are. I love vanilla bean extract. Yeah. I make my own. I, I mm. have a supplier of vanilla bean that I love getting, um, and in these times it was a little bit harder. Uh, to get vanilla. So having a local source of something that you can infuse baked goods, it's just, there's nothing like it. Yeah. Yeah. And you can't get vanilla here. I mean, like that's never going to be, that's a tropical, Yep, it's an orchid, Yep, but I think I know who your supplier is. (laughs) (laughs) And I would never say who, because I want people to fight for it themselves. Yes. But yes, that sounds wonderful. Mm. That sounds wonderful. How on earth did this become something you care about? Well, First and foremost, I would say I'm an environmentalist Mm -hmm. and I love going out in nature and nature is my medicine. Nine out of 10 times I'm going out and I'm hiking and I'm not collecting anything. I'm having a conversation with, you know, the air and the earth Mm -hmm. and the plants around me, learning about animals and and the 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 flora and the fauna are really what inspire me to go out all the time. Um, I also have this passion for food. Mm -hmm. And so 
foraging has become an interesting infusion to be able to take the, the, the intellectualism of wanting to learn more and more about the nature around me mm -hmm. to kind of um, nativize or um, uh, as Robin Wall Kimmer says to re-indigenize. Mm -hmm. I want to know where I'm living so I can be a part of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, it does create this, this deep curiosity and this deep uh, desire to protect the special place that we live in. Yeah. So yeah. that's that's really where it comes from. Mm. Did you grow up wild crafting, going out with parents so I, or grandparents? Or I grew something? up in a hobby shop. So, oh, so really? Yeah, um, in the Bay Area. And um, so my mom and my dad were, were hobbyists by by trade and by by their by their business, so I always grew up crafting something. Mm. And uh, mm. having grew up, grown up in an area where you could always find something on the road, or yeah. or or um, you know, my my mom used to uh, give us buckets and then uh, kick us out of the door and say, "Come back when you have the buckets filled with uh, with blackberries." <laughs> and so awesome. we'd come back, and um, you know, she'd make these wonderful things. And I think that's really where I I got that experience. There was a plum tree down the road from my house, and we would collect plums. And I, I cannot tell you how delicious that plum was. Yeah. Uh, the the process of picking it, knowing where to go, knowing when to go out. Mm -hmm. There's something so special and and so so primal about mm -hmm. uh, connecting with land in such a way. Yeah. So I would say um, it's something that I. Uh, I have always been around, mm -hmm. even having lived in an urban environment. And that's where you even have to get more creative. Mm -hmm. So even if you're living in downtown Slow, there's so many opportunities, not only to uh, to pick from, you know, a, a, maybe your neighbor's neighbor's garden but you can make friends that way too yeah. because otherwise you know that a lot of the the trees in san luis uh would otherwise the fruit would go go to the ground and spoil mm -hmm. so you can make friends you know ask for a lemon or ask for a um a persimmon and yeah. use it for something that you elevate to you know the finest cuisine you could make in your home right right <laughs> I want to take a second to talk about a couple friends of the Consumed podcast, like Midstate Containers. My contact at Midstate is Jake Knotts, and I have his permission to share about something going on with him personally. Jake lived in Ukraine for many years, and he married a Ukrainian national, his wife Anya. They live on the Central Coast now with their three kids, but when Russia invaded Ukraine last February, Jake was right back there, helping his friends, acquaintances, strangers, and even their pets to escape. Since that time, he and Anya have worked with a team of very capable folks to start a nonprofit called Restore UA, which seeks to organize, fund, and execute relief efforts in Ukraine. Jake is still on the ground in Eastern Europe, coordinating with people here on the Central Coast to fill containers from Midstate with humanitarian aid and ship them to Restore UA's headquarters in Poland. Every dollar donated to Restore UA goes straight to humanitarian relief efforts for Ukraine. They even have people sewing bulletproof vests for soldiers fighting Russian forces. It's incredible. The organization is starting to fill up more containers as I speak, and they could really use your financial support. To make a donation and learn more, visit RestoreUA.org. Thank you. Do you want to be more intentional about the meat you eat and feed your family? 
Have you even considered giving up eating meat entirely because you can no longer justify supporting the inhumane and industrialized system that brings meat to your dinner table? If you're looking for a simple way to guarantee you always have access to healthy, sustainably farmed meat and wild seafood, the Larder Meat Co. is here to help. Since 2016, Larder Meat Co. has been delivering farm-raised beef, pork, chicken, lamb, and wild seafood sourced from right here in the Golden State to customers who demand the highest quality proteins as well as intentional sourcing standards and transparency. A convenient club box from Larder Meat Co. makes it easy to automate the most important part of your monthly food budget. You can build a custom box or choose from one of the many curated bundles that LMC offers. As a Larder Meat Co. customer, you are supporting the ever-dwindling ranching industry that has fed us for generations, and you're building a sustainable future for your family, our ranchers, and the planet. Use code CONSUMED at checkout to save $25 on your first subscription and check healthy farm-raised meat and wild seafood off your grocery list for good. That's LarderMeatCo.com. Promo code CONSUMED for $25 off your first subscription. Consumed is sponsored by Slow Life Magazine, a lifestyle publication that celebrates life and culture in San Luis Obispo, California. I write the food column for Slow Life, and I'm actually going out tonight to cover the new restaurant, Cult, for the magazine. I'm going to meet up with photographer Jess Lerner and owners Nino and Cher Ang, and we're going to eat, chat, and snap, and I can't wait. To make sure you see the final product when it comes out, get yourself a subscription at slowlifemagazine.com. There was a website ages ago, and I can't remember what it was called, but it was a basically a crowdsourced map, like a mm. wiki mm-hmm. map that you could, um, people could say, oh, there's an avocado tree where the branches hang over onto mm. the sidewalk mm-hmm. at 667 Hill Street, mm. or, um, you know, there's a, there's a loquat tree here, or, you know, there's wild asparagus on the roadside here. Mm. And I love that. And I want to see if it's still going because mm. it's such a great way to, I mean, I know, I know it's important to keep our eyes open to learn, to find these mm-hmm. things, but it's mm-hmm. also really sweet to see a neighborhood or a community come together and identify where this food is free. Yes. And, and I also really love um, I feel like the taste of food in the wild, yes, there is this mental, emotional, like geographic connection we make when we eat off the side of the road. But there's also, um, you know, when plants are out in the wild, there's a flavor concentration with with plants that have to fight to live. Mm, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, I mean, a, the grapes, the vines, they struggle. It's a lot of the time it's a prescribed struggle for mm. them out in the vineyard so that they will gain that concentration of flavor. Mm. But here, these natural things, you know, they're fighting to live. They're, they're in the elements. Nobody's watering them. Um, you know, every year in terms of weather is completely different. So their flavor is really, really beautiful and, and strong and, um, they kind of announce themselves. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and we can leave some for the the wildlife as well. Yeah. And I I want to I want to speak on that. So um, when going out, particularly in in open spaces or wild places, I I never decimate any bush. I never pick everything. Like, yeah. Go I for only it. pick for what um, what I can use, mm-hmm. or if I'm going to share some, just enough to be able to share a little taster. Yeah. Um, and so I don't bring. 
ladders out um, mm-hmm. uh, in wild places because uh, bringing ladders out would prevent the birds from being able to, to collect from the tops of the trees. Um, I use the grazing method. So I will pick a little from one bush and then I'll pick a, mm-hmm. another from another bush. It ends up being a, a more fun process too mm-hmm. because I'm, I'm picking a little here and there. I'm getting to, to get a walk. I'm getting some exercise. And if somebody else wanted to pick some, then I'd leave some for the, the next person. Mm-hmm. Um, I would also like to highlight, you just mentioned about having um, resources online for mm-hmm. being able to go out and collect. Um, I think that's useful. Um, what I love to do, and I'm always one, you know, foragers tend to guard where their, their secret yes. spots are, <laughs> you, as you might, as you might <laughs> imagine and know. You'll never you, try to ask a mushroom or where they, they, they found their chanterelles. Good luck. Oh, I've tried and <laughs> I've, it's almost come to blows, honestly. <laughs> yeah, as it should. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, but one, one thing I really do love to encourage folks that are interested in getting into this, and that is um, finding an app. Um, and and there are lots out there, but I want to give a plug to iNaturalist. Yes, it is an app that not only can you use the AI, the artificial intelligence, to help you uh, identify positively identify the plant uh, or fungi that you're looking at, um, but also you're contributing to citizen science. Yeah. And so by you posting something where you're on a hike and you're not sure what it is, you might have just found that one unique mushroom that people didn't realize was growing in that particular area. As wild spaces are diminishing, it is so useful to have crowdsourced science. Mm -hmm. That being said, there's a really important component that I want to just encourage the listeners to consider, um, and that is putting geo-privacy on Mm -hmm. anything that they post. Maybe not poison hemlock people can see poison hemlock <laughs> or geo privacy though what yeah does that mean? yeah that means um that if you're going to post something let's say um you're going onto the iNaturalist app and you have pictures let's say you're you're taking a picture of a mushroom and you have no idea what it is mm-hmm. first of all if you take a mix a, a picture from you know you're, you're standing up and you take a picture of this mushroom on the ground uh and you say what is this well a potato i have no idea mm-hmm. you have to look up the skirt of the mushroom so you have to look at the fertile surface and take pictures of it from many different angles mm-hmm. so um, not only with mushrooms do you need to take a few different fo- photos to yeah. different shots to help you identify with plants you also need the flowers and the leaves mm-hmm. and the and the, sometimes the trunk um, to be able to help you recognize help the the artificial intelligence recognize what exactly that yeah. that species is um, but then there is this feature that says um, the the geolocation, the geotagging is obscured. So researchers would still be able to know where it is. But um, if, let's say, you've got somebody, um, we'll call them um, Sally. Sally wants to... Uh, go and collect a bunch uh, because she's got, you know, um, a big event that she wants to collect a ton of chanterelles. Um, And then she completely clears out a particular area. Let's Mm -hmm. say she uses, um, and I've heard this practice, maybe not in this county, but um, raking of, of, a, of an area which is incredibly um, disturbing of the soil. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and the practices aren't very good, that area has been pretty much decimated mm -hmm. and they may not grow back because the mycelial network below has been disturbed. Right. Um, right. And so it's, it's a security for the plant community. Mm -hmm. um, it is important to post and to share and I love sharing communities um, and I'd say do it for gleaning, gleaning practices, mm -hmm. gleaning being um, like a practice of foraging where you're going out and picking a lemon, things that are not rarefied. Yeah. But there's lots of plants out there well first of all I don't really pick a lot of rarefied plants when there's um, really popular things so like there's there's moments for certain things like mushrooms is having a, the mushrooms are having they a are moment having a moment seaweeds yes. having a moment yes. uh, I just kind of avoid it now because huh. I I don't want to um, to to take more than what the environment can can sustain mm -hmm. so there's enough of other things that's abundant completely abundant that I can uh, I can collect and harvest and infuse into the the, the flavors of my food and I think acorns are gonna have a moment they're I gonna have a moment it. yes I also feel like acorns can probably sustain yeah um, because there's so much of them and you know um, uh, squirrels have lots of caches and they lose them often so they just will have to look harder for their caches but <laughs> yeah but that being said um, whenever you're going out don't take all of it don't yeah. don't clear yeah. a space um, really be conscientious not just of your other foragers but of your your, your furry and you know your animal friends because yes. they depend on it right tell me about how you wound up in San Luis Oh yeah. So years ago, I um, I wanted to get into um, environmental work, and uh, I applied to go to Cal Poly. I got into city and regional planning, and at that time, I was really involved with uh, sustainability. Mm -hmm. So I um, participated in a group called Empower Poly Coalition, mm -hmm. and it was back in the early 2010s, and and um, we did amazing work there, uh, preserving and protecting the environment of Cal Poly. We, we did um, campaigns and programming that make Cal Poly more sustainable. Yeah. Um, and so- I mean the campus itself, the mm -hmm. campus and all of its effects and- Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, I was part of a, a team that authored the the Green Campus program, mm -hmm. which is still, I think, in effect, um, where it basically is around energy efficiency yeah. upgrades, and the the money gets revolved back into the programming, the the, the money savings from from the program, um, and we we wrote uh, campaigns to to get the the campus to have a certain level of green certification mm -hmm. for any new buildings, um, basically in perpetuity of how long the school will be Amazing, there. Yeah. So um, that coupled with having worked with the Sierra Club during my internship and beyond, we took people through five different countries, through England, Belgium, Netherlands, Denmark, and Sweden to see best practices mm. of sustainable growth and development. Um, this, it was a place that more so than any other place I've ever lived and I've lived in Germany I studied grad school in Germany and I spent a little stint of time in France and in Denmark and then moved to Brazil I'd say more so than any other place I've ever lived I felt more at home and more welcomed and more loved to curate and create uh, a world and uh, a, a life that uh, is well situated with my values. Mm -hmm. And this community is so supportive of that. Yeah. So um, if people ask me what, what my job is, um, it's definitely around 
experiential wellness. Yeah. Um, and that's the that's the stance and the take that I that I um, that that foraging is the foraging is the lens mm-hmm. to which I I offer experiences to help people get more in touch with the, with themselves mm-hmm. and also in touch with the environment. And I'm so thankful to this community because yeah. th- they're just in for it. They, they just are. love it and they they've you know supported me through the years in doing the things that I've been doing. Yeah. yeah. And you're not just based out of San Luis Obispo. Correct. I mean despite your name. Yeah. yeah. Or just slow. <laughs> yes, despite that. No, you mm. were telling me that you have about half of your time is spent up in In Big Sur. Big Sur. So tell me a, a bit about how that happened. Yeah, yeah. So um, around November time, I was uh, I was contacted by uh, a lovely lady at a hotel in Big Sur called Ventana Big Sur. Um, it was Ventana? Ventana. Oh, baby. Oh, my gosh. That place is so incredible. We it camp is. in the campground sometimes. Oh, yeah. That's me every week. It's the priciest camping I think I've ever done, but it's so worth it. It's, it's so, so worth beautiful. it. It's quiet. Um, it's tranquil. It's set in redwoods. Yeah. Um, and if you're looking for a place that um, that you will pretty much ensure that you you will have some quietude, that is the place to go. Yeah. Um, so it's got campgrounds, it's got glamping, and it has a beautiful hotel facility. Which, great bar. Great, great bar, <laughs> I hear. <laughs> um, but what's what's amazing about that place is that they contacted me and said, we're looking to do some programming with locals, and I'm considered Central Coast yeah. a, a local. Um, and I now lead uh, hiking experiences and uh, foraging experiences for their guests. Wow. And so I'm there uh, three to four times, three to four days per week. Mm-hmm. And so I'm splitting my time between uh, San Luis Obispo County and, and Big Sur. So wow. it's just great because I'm finding... I'm learning about so many rarefied plants up there mm-hmm. and learning about, uh, you know, the similarities and the differences. It's more of up there. It's more of the confluence between Northern California and Southern California, yes. um, which makes it just such a special place. Mm. And um, this last week, I, I just finished up working um, in the Pacific Valley, just south of, of uh, Ventana. So it's it's more north from San Luis Obispo, but about an hour north from, from Slow, the Pacific Valley in Big Sur, mm-hmm. and led, um, helped lead a, a, a yoga and wellness retreat where, where mm-hmm. I fed about 25 people. Um, and we just put little infusions of, of wild flavors into, into their cuisine. Wow. So they got wonderful. that experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what's something that's available in Big Sur that's not available here in terms of foraging? What's, what are some interesting plants that you find up there that just aren't aren't here well there's there's um like like we talked about redwood redwood tips yeah where the the little tips at the ends like on the needles um these are are have compact uh flavors of essential oil that mm-hmm. you can then infuse into things um there's there's other plants that um i would say are more just rare species that i wouldn't necessarily pick um there's some beautiful rare plants uh that are in bloom right now one is uh western solomon's bloom not Mm -hmm. edible but the smell is just delightful Mm -hmm. um and then there's a a hooker's fairy bell which is another um beautiful specimen that i just love seeing and don't see it a lot and then of course the lupin there's Mm -hmm. lupin here but there's just an abundance up there is that edible by the way it is um i don't eat it doesn't taste Um, great yeah yeah no i i i would imagine it it does um, but I just don't, um, I don't do a lot of digging, um, mm-hmm. just for my own per- personal practices. It, probably 
would, but I, I just don't. Mm-hmm. Um, other plants that are uh, more in Big Sur. Well, and tell here. me about the walks too. I mm-hmm. mean, if a guest at the hotel or camping, I suppose it's like an add-on thing where if they say, "Look, I'd like to go out mm-hmm. and check some stuff out," you do a private walk with them. Well, we do complimentary walks. Okay. So I do those two times a week, mm-hmm. and then we do private experiences. So this month we've been doing a sea salt experience, um, mm-hmm. which we're not actually going out to the ocean. We will in the next few months, but um, we uh, collect water and then process it in kind of a, like a home sea salt kind of way mm-hmm. instead of like a um, like more commercial scale where it's using more evaporation. We, we boil it down and, um, and then the, the guests get to infuse the sea salt with local flavors like mm-hmm. sagebrush, uh, maybe a, a little rockweed seaweed. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's other you know, rosemary, which is abundant on property. Um, lavender and it just becomes a a really fun interactive experience we also have a garden on property and for any kind of foraging programs it's so useful to have a garden that Mm -hmm. um, we know we can go and collect and use that so we can point out the things in nature and then we can collect from the garden where we grow it ourselves right right so hugely important when somebody looks you up um, and wants to find out what kinds of experiences you offer in general. Mm-hmm. It sounds like, do you, are you a practitioner for yoga? Uh, I was, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So you've got that under mm-hmm. your belt. What other kinds of things can people locally maybe who are interested in foraging? I mean, what sorts of experiences do you offer? Yeah. So usually I offer locally like a once a month kind of experience. Um, so this, this coming month in May, um, we'll offer uh, what we're calling serenade in the wild. Mm-hmm. So it will be an outdoor experience. Uh, in a location that we won't tell you until you sign up. <laughs> Which is really in Ozos. cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and um, we'll have a, a classical violinist play some French-inspired French music, and then we'll have patisserie, um, so, so French um, desserts infused with foraged flavors, and then some really fun teas that we will um, hand harvest and make into just beautiful experiences it's like high tea in the wild like That's yeah so cool like an afternoon tea in the wild yeah yeah and it's 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 um pretty intimate the max we would have at any experience would be about 20 people yeah and that's enough <laughs> that's actually a good amount yeah i mean yeah, yeah. it's mm-hmm. cool yeah cool. so um that's what we're doing next month and then the month after that um there's going to be an expert that's coming from ojai mm-hmm. uh lanny and he is going to um talk about uh native plants in the region he wrote a book called Medicinal Plants of California uh, and it's one of those books um, published by the Falcon Guides and so he'll talk about nettles and um, and he'll make some nettle and um, oat straw teas and so there will be a little bit of a taster and a talk and he'll talk about some of the recipes in his book and he is just an amazing wealth of knowledge Mm. so um, something that I've done ever since the start of when I was working with the Sierra Club over over a decade ago was get really wonderful experts that can talk on behalf of you know the medicinal sides to you know getting chefs that that know about things um getting um getting different people you know um mycologists phycologists people that 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 I'm I'm kind of a dabbler of many things Mm -hmm. um but I love bringing people that really know their stuff um to the community so we can share and and educate and bring the overall understanding up so that yeah. we can all do this together. Yeah. Have you ever had um, an experience of, I mean, well, I'm, my 
mouth is going faster. My brain is going faster than my <laughs> mouth. Um, you've built up this knowledge base of, of you know, foraging edible plants, um, you know, edible or um, eco communities. You understand, you know, when there's, um, what is it called? Coyote. Coyote brush. Coyote brush <laughs> is in the same area as poison oak because one is an antidote for the other. I mean, you understand all of these things. I take it that you didn't learn all of this in college, let's mm. say. It's mm -hmm. been over the course of, you know, your lifetime of yeah. building up this understanding. Um, have you ever tried something that you were wrong about mm. and had a negative experience? Mm. So, Live and learn kind of experience? Well, you're talking to a person that uh, lives by the precautionary principle. Mm -hmm. So if it might hurt me, I don't touch it. Um, when I was 14 years old, I was swimming in a pond and got out of the, the pond and got a scrape from poison oak mm -hmm. and got systemic poison oak head to toe poison oak. Boy. And so, um, I'm a person that, um, is, is very, I'm very concerned about getting, you know, a rash or mm -hmm. getting, um, getting some kind of ailment from things that I don't know about. Mm -hmm. um, and I, it's funny, the more I meet with people, the more I realize I am the odd one. Mm -hmm. I'm not the norm. There are people that have, you know, tasted wild plants that are poisonous, uh, have eaten mushrooms that have sent them into the emergency room. Um, and I will say for those who are interested in getting into mushrooms, it's not something you dabble in. Mm -hmm. um, mushrooms, when eaten, when eating the wrong one, will have multi-system organ failure, dying a very slow and painful death. Mm. Um, that being said, there was uh, a moment many years ago when I um, saw poison hemlock look like carrots so it look or chervil because it's in the mm -hmm. carrot family and I um I picked it and I smelled it and I was like whoa that smells toxic mm. and um hmm. sure enough it was toxic and thankfully I wasn't like oh I'm gonna put this in my mouth Ugh. um but it's amazing to me um interfacing with the public how important it is to tell people we're on a foraging walk but that doesn't mean you should put stuff in your mouth mm -hmm. and that seems um intuitive um, but I also was um, meeting with a few folks recently where they're like, oh, we were just in the forest and we read that it's really good to touch everything you can. Mm. And I said, well, I hope you know what the poison oak looks like. Oh, I don't. And oh, maybe also like the, the, the snake, the snake root that also can cause allergic reactions. Oh, what does that look like? And the um, poison hemlock that's growing around. Oh, I don't know what that looks like either. Mm -hmm. um, and so. But that's what's so exciting to me, too, because there is an amazing learning curve that's coming up for people where they really have this strong desire to um, rewild and naturalize and, and get in nature and be a positive um, influence in nature mm -hmm. and and feel the positive effects. Um, and it just takes a little like getting over that hump of just basics that that yeah. then they can they can go out and um and and be you know interact with with the environment once more i want to give love to a couple other podcast friends slow food co-op is your friendly neighborhood grocer maintaining local organic and non-gmo standards slow food co-op sources from local producers ensuring they offer their shoppers great food and household staples with a mission to empower health and well-being in the community, they offer local produce, meats, low to no-waste foods, and wellness items. You can find Slow's only community-owned grocery store on their website at slowfood.coop, 
and visit Slow Food Co-op in-store at 2494 Victoria Avenue in San Luis Obispo, California. Native Nine Wine is part of Ranchos de Onaveros, a Santa Maria winery that sponsors the Consumed podcast. Owner James Onaveros was on the podcast way back in its first season, but if you haven't listened to it, I think this recent blurb from Food and Wine magazine will give you some context on who James is. This is written by Jonathan Cristaldi. James Ray Onaveros is a name to put on your short list of must-watch vintners. A ninth-generation farmer who works lands established by his family in the early 1780s, Onaveros decided to plant vines on the property in 1997, after which he studied at Cal Poly, worked in Sonoma, and soaked up the secrets of the Pinot trade during visits to legendary Burgundy estates like Domaine du Jacques and Domaine de la Romanée Conti. Today, winemaker Justin Woollett works with James to produce native nine wines, and they are destined to become commodities to stockpile. Out of this world aromatics of savory wild herbs, leather, and tobacco leaf are complemented by red currants and juicy cherries, all lingering through a long mineral finish. Well, I, Jamie, can confirm that the wines really are that good. Let the stockpiling begin at ranchosdeonaveroswines.com. So, um, yeah, I've, I've been lucky because I, I tend to um, look and, and, and make sure and mm-hmm. check and double check. I have not had one of those, like, oops, I have to go to the emergency room and get my stomach pumped or something Good, like but that. I mean, it sounds like you could have gotten very close with that poison hemlock. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm sure that was a very instructive experience for Absolutely. you to smell that it was toxic. Yep, yep. And, um, I mean, there's a book called, and I recommend this for anybody who's interested in fermenting, The Art of Fermentation, um, where there's a case study in there where um, a guy confuses poison hemlock for sherbel. Mm. He pickles it, so he ferments it, he eats it, he goes to the hospital, almost dies, doesn't die, which demonstrates to me that, um, that, that fermenting things makes things more edible, more palatable, um, which is so fantastic. But, um, first and foremost, you always have to go out knowing what poisonous lookalikes are, especially Mm. deadly poisonous lookalikes. So, um, if you're curious, um, get a few guides, um, download, you know, iNaturalist or Mm -hmm. really any app. Um, I like iNaturalist because you're, you're helping science. Um, but those, those are the basics. Yeah. And um, so, you know, people ask me, well, how do you know? Um, you just, you just start, you just start realizing what yeah. things look like, and 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 you you realize that um, that, for example, elderflower and poison mm-hmm. hemlock flower do not look very similar, mm-hmm. and and that's something that comes along with experience. Yeah, yeah. One of the most beautiful experiences I've had is. Uh, my husband and I were uh, woofers worldwide, mm. um, w- uh, world, no, Wheel- worldwide uh, organic, oh my gosh, it's been too long. Anyway, <laughs> we work, willing workers on organic farms, that's it. <laughs> and um, we were near Spoleto in Umbria, and the, the people who owned the farm we were working on were big time naturalists. It was a woman from California and she had married an Italian man who was, I mean, we're talking generations Mm -hmm. of wild crafting. And it was so beautiful to go out with my husband and know what we were looking at. Mm -hmm. And now you talk about terroir. I mean, it was a completely different, a completely different Mm -hmm. um, grouping of plants there. But I mean, just going out and, and we've also foraged for porcini Mm. in Slovenia and Austria. And I mean, just what an amazing life Mm. experience to be able to do that. And as you're talking about iNaturalist, I'm thinking about 
how um, I just read a story. The the most recent Bon Appetit magazine is all about the future of food. And there's a huge piece on foraging. Um, and one of the tips they gave was that dandelions, you can use them as straws <laughs> for your drink, which I thought was great. Um, but in that, they talked about iNaturalist quite a bit. Mm. And I think taking a child out with that app, mm-hmm. I mean, it bridges this like techno natural world that they can help one another and for a child to be part of that to have positive identification Mm. on a plant or on a leaf or whatever um we did something like that when we were in arizona over the summer i used leaf snap just to identify something and it's just fascinating Mm. Mm -hmm. it's fascinating so i really do i'm with you i i would totally get on the iNaturalist train yeah and help, you know, as you're curious, it helps support other people's curiosity. Absolutely. And I love that component you're talking about with children. Mm-hmm. I recall as a kid, um, my uh, my schooling talked about recycling. Yeah. And I remember bringing that knowledge home and just shaming my parents All that right. they didn't recycle. <laughs> um, and, well, that probably wasn't the best method, but I just mm. couldn't fathom how we didn't have that practice in the home. Mm. And then we did. Yeah. And that became a huge component. And then we composted. Mm-hmm. And I think there is something um, about getting getting kids out there, getting them curious, getting them involved in this process, um, because there's nothing better than lots of hands yeah. to do the work for mm-hmm. this kind of work, because it is tedious, but it's the most delightful kind of tedious, especially when um, there's a learning component to it. Yeah. For sure. My kids went vegetarian because of climate change. Mm. I mean, they, you know, what they learned in school, it sat deep with them. Mm. And um, yeah, right at the beginning of the pandemic, they were like, we're done here. Mm. And mm-hmm. it was just interesting to see the way a culture can move forward via young people making decisions Absolutely. like that. Yeah. I'm vegetarian. Um, I am very interested in some of the, the work that's being done around eating invasive species, mm, mm-hmm. which I think is, um, it's a, an interesting endeavor from, you know, fish to um, other, you know, I've heard wild boar is something that, you know, is a problem in many places. Um, partly because a lot of the um, the predator animals have been hunted to near extinction. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also this movement of insect eating. I was going to ask you about that, yeah. actually. So, um, so say, take, for example, acorns. You've got these little weevils that... Um, mm-hmm. that burrow the holes in the in the acorns now I usually pick around those and I try to avoid them as much as possible um, but there is a there is a uh, a forager down south who I love to plug Pas- Pascal Bodar um, and he um, collects them and elevates them to delicious culinary level yeah uh, there's a there's a restaurant in New York that now is serving insects um, mm-hmm. I remember being at like the fifth best restaurant in the world in Sao Paulo, Brazil, where I used to live. And um, it was at Dom, D-O-M, fantastic restaurant. And one of the courses was an ant served on a pineapple. <laughs> and I'm like, are you serious? I've just paid like $1,000 for this meal and you're serving me an ant? But it was the most interesting experience um, having tasted it. So mm-hmm. it was from the Amazonas, from the Amazon. And um, the, the locals used to cure meats with it because it has a spice and it dehydrates the, the meats. Mm. So um, it was important for um, food preservation. Um, but it tasted spicy and it had this kind of crunch, like a cricket, if you'd imagine, you know, the, the what do they chop? 
chapulino or something like that oh in gosh, in Mexico. Know. They're crickets yeah. as a dessert or as a dinner or as a as a snack actually from Mexico. Um, some some kind of crunch like that, um, and it was it was fascinating. Yeah. And I think um, getting finding food sources that are lower on the food chain mm-hmm. is just it can be elevated. It can yeah. be interesting. And, and, um, more and more people are interested in getting into it. And so more power to them. Maybe one day I'll eat the, the little weevils inside of the acorns, <laughs> but I'll, I'll leave it for the others. Someday you'll look at it and you'll be like, you know what? Today's the day. Today's the day. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> oh <laughs> Not my today. Gosh, maybe so tomorrow. <laughs> well, I think that, a, um, a walk for children could be so, so cool. Mm. If you ever feel like you want to do that, I would I would promote the heck out of it. I think that could be really nice. Fun. Yeah, I've had some asks, so yeah, I bet. it will happen. Do you, as we were sitting here, so the wind is kind of blowing, but every once in a while when it stops and the heat comes off the ground, I mean that like sagey, earthy mm-hmm. smell. When you came back here from mm-hmm. abroad, I mean, you must have just fallen down and like kissed the ground. In terms of the smell, that like that smell of Central California mm. is so specific. Indeed, it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, in when I before I moved to Brazil, I was living in Germany for four years, and and in that time, I I lived in the Schwarzwald in mm. the Black Forest, mm-hmm. and um, the forests there are just not the same. Yeah. So they had a, an event called the Waldstaben, which was the dying of the forest, um, where it was in the 90s, I believe, and it was from basically Germany through Siberia, and they lost a lot of their forest stock because just of for... because of uh, acid rain. Oh, and wow. um, so the some of the laws were changed, and that got better Um, but as a result you have three different types of trees growing in Germany in Mm -hmm. their forests and um, they if you look at the right angle you will see their perfect lines Mm. uh, perfectly German you see guys um, (laughs) up in the uh, up in the trees cutting down branches to make sure the trees are straight Um, and that's because they don't have a national park system they've got something more like forest service Mm -hmm. um, land and so um, the understory was very anticlimactic. There's not a lot of things happening on several levels. Um, you go over to Switzerland, it was more interesting. There were mushrooms that were the size of my dog, which, you know, it's not that big. But, <laughs> but um, they're, they're just really interesting um, uh creatures and and mushrooms and variety there that I just wouldn't see in Germany. Um, When I got back, I was so thankful for, as a child, I remember my mindset of seeing the golden hillsides Mm -hmm. and thinking just uh, it was one thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And it changed my perspective. Mm -hmm. I think I became much more sensitized to chaparral is complete. Uh, I, I think um, as a kind of coming from, um, um, from a, a mindset of the land having to have, you know, like this, as you'd imagine, like this bucolic British landscape with lots of trees and greenery, yeah, yeah. I always saw up until, um, you know, when I moved back, I'd really say that, that, um, that the, the, the land was incomplete. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But I came back realizing so much there's so much more diversity Mm -hmm. than if you saw it from afar and you and you and as you get you break down that idea that you need to have you know a lush green forest Mm -hmm. and appreciate this land for what it is um you can have a really uh, much more interesting conversation with with, i love that with the land yeah um and and also know 
how we have how um, people have impacted the land you know from the Spanish planting grasses with very shallow roots and that's the reason why the 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 hills get golden because they don't take as much water to the invasive species to you know the the different ways that that humans have impacted the land you know post-colonization mm -hmm. 500 years ago there is definitely an, an impact um, and so understanding those systems and and how we can um, positively influence the environment is is something I really want to be a part of yeah yeah that's wonderful well so I always love to ask people at the end of any interview uh, if it were the last day of your life, what would you eat? What would you drink? Mm. And who would you be with? But I think for a forager especially, mm. I am always really curious about people who who flavored their food with local with local touches. So mm. what would you have on your last Ooh, day? Yeah, so I would take a little sip of elderberry vinegar mm. uh, as, a, as a kind of cleanser and a salute to the, the land. Um, I would probably make some, some uh, manzanita pancakes mm. and put some kind of um, forest-infused syrup on top. Yes. And, and that would be my last meal. That's a great last meal. <laughs> and it might cost you zero dollars, too. Indeed, it might. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Thank you, Nan, so much for Thank talking you. to me. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. Of course. That's another episode in the books for The Consumed Podcast, which is produced and edited by me, Jamie Lewis. Special thanks to Stefan and Elisa Geraldo of Geraldo Creative Studio for their beautiful video and photography work that's kind of sprucing up my Instagram feed at Jamie C. Lewis, as well as on the website, letsgetconsumed.com. And thank you listeners, as always, for tuning in. Until next time, I'm Jamie Lewis.